0: Father, we pray, Lord, for you to speak your word into our hearts and change our lives now. We ask that this uh, there be no time wasted and there'd be no one untouched, Lord, because you've been here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been doing this series on New Beginnings out of the book of Genesis, which is a book of New Beginnings. This morning, I want to talk about the purpose of New Beginnings. What is God up to as he orchestrates new beginnings around the world and new beginnings in our lives? I want to illustrate it this way. Go ahead and put that slide up there of the map of the United States. I want you to just consider that you wanted to build a road, let's say, from Arlington, Texas to New York. Your goal was to build a road beginning here and ending there in New York. If that was your goal, you would not purchase land in New Mexico for the right of way for your highway, would you? No. Because you're not going that direction at all. Well, your destination actually influences your decision at the very start. The things that you do at the beginning make sense because of your goal at the end. If someone asks you, you know, why are you buying land in Tennessee? You would say, well, I'm buying land there because I need the right of way to build this road from Arlington to New York. So your end goal destination influences your decision making from the very beginning. Well, the Bible makes it quite clear that history is God's highway to an appointed future. John Piper rightly said, God himself is the chief engineer and the head foreman on this job. History, he goes on to say, history is not a random path cut through the countryside by people without a compass. It's a highway that leads from creation to consummation, engineered by God who directs everything from his sovereign standpoint in the future the point is basically this history is going somewhere and God appointed the goal before the foundation of the world he had a goal in mind before he created anything he had a goal and his overarching providence over all the events is in place to serve that goal So where is history headed? Where is God guiding history? Well, Numbers 14, verse 21 tells us, and this is God himself speaking. Numbers 14, verse 21, he says, Indeed, as I live, God says, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So that's where God is taking history. That is his end goal. And God is committed to arranging and disposing of all the events of history and all the events of our lives to get to that goal. Now, according to Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, God says this. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So at the beginning of history, God saw the end of history. He saw it, and he aimed to perform his purposes. He knew what had to be done in order to achieve it. That's why he decreed, my counsel will stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. So in a very real sense, I want you to see it this way. God runs history from the perspective of the future. So he stands, in a sense, already at the destination, to use our illustration, guiding the road crew. He's already standing in New York, making sure that road gets there as opposed to going to Chicago or Detroit or Los Angeles. That means this. That means that if things in history are going the wrong direction then we can expect that God would interrupt that direction, intervene and stop it, and give it a new beginning, a new start, so it might get to where he wants it to go. In other words, if the end goal cannot be reached by the present direction things are headed, then expect God to intervene and give it a new beginning, a new start, so it will head the direction it needs to go. Well, that's basically what we see happening in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, when we get to chapter 6, which we're going to look at some today, we find out that mankind has gotten so evil and headed in such a wrong direction that God has to start over and give it history as this new beginning. And in starting over, he's going to have to destroy the entire human race except for Noah and his family and start over and head so it can be headed the right direction. He can get to his end goal. So that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So it wasn't heading that direction. It couldn't get there from where it was in Genesis six. So God had to intervene and give it a new beginning, a new start in a new direction back on track. Well, Genesis six, that happens with Noah and the flood. In Genesis chapter 11, we see God doing something similar to that again. Mankind in Genesis chapter 11 is not filling the earth like they have been commanded to do so, so that one day the glory of the Lord will fill the whole earth, but rather mankind is all gathered together at the Tower of Babel. And mankind is not glorifying God, but glorifying man. So what does God do? Well, God, again, we would expect this to happen, is going to have to intervene because they're not going to get there, you know, from the way they're going right there in Genesis 11. So he has to intervene, confuse their languages, even, you know, divide the people into different ethnos, ethnicities, and scatter them across the globe. So he starts over again in Genesis 11. Why? Because it has to have a new beginning if he's going to get to his end goal so that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Well, then we get to Genesis chapter 12, and again, we see a new beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man by the name of Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. But God has a goal in mind when he does this. His goal is that he's going to, he's going to develop a whole nation from this one man, Abraham, but the goal is that not just that that nation would know God, but that that nation would be used by God, that all the nations of the world would know God. That was the plan. <clears throat> what was the plan? The plan was to get to God's end goal that the whole world would be filled with the glory of the Lord. So what we see in the book of Genesis is God is actively involved in orchestrating the events of individuals and nations so he can reach his end goal. And his end goal is that one day they'll whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So if your life today is headed in the wrong direction, don't be surprised if God doesn't interrupt your life so he can give it a new start, so you can get going the right direction. And you're headed in the direction that is not only best for you, but will accomplish God's purposes on the earth. So my question today is this. How can we position ourselves to be those who cooperate with God and cooperate with him, what he's doing on the earth as he's directing history? Or put it this way, how can we be those that God would look to, use to accomplish his purposes on the earth? I mean, God chose Noah, but why did he choose Noah? And God chose Abraham, but why did he choose Abraham? Abraham. I mean, why did God choose Noah to use? And why did God choose Abraham to use? And how can I be one that God would choose to use to accomplish his purposes on the earth? How can we position ourselves to be those that God will be inclined to use? Well, that's what I want us to look at this week and next week. This week, I want us to look at Noah. And next week, we'll look at Abraham. Let's talk this week about the time of Noah, which, by the way, is one of the most terrifying and tragic stories of God's wrath in the Bible. A lot of times people think of Noah and the ark as a children's story. This is no children's story. It is simple enough for children to understand, but this, isn't, this is a very terrifying, tragic story. And I want to just uh, summarize it for you in three simple steps Three stages, so to speak. First of all, the wickedness of man became so great, it says that man's heart was filled with evil continually. Secondly, God's patience came to a point where he just, it comes to an end. There's a time where God's patience runs out. It came to an end and he decides he has to destroy all these unrepentant sinners. But then thirdly, we, we discover that God does not surrender his purpose in this judgment. He doesn't surrender his purpose and why he created man in the first place. Even in judgment, God is not going to stop building his highway to his end goal of filling the earth with the glory of the Lord. He will still accomplish it. I mean, this, this judgment in Genesis 6 is real and it's horrible, but it's not the end. God still has a goal he's going to accomplish. Let's just look at this, first of all, how wicked it got, the human heart. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. Wow. Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So that's the state. That's the wrong direction. God's not going to get there going that direction. So God intervenes as patience comes to an end. Genesis 6, verse 7, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis 6:13 God said to Noah I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold I will destroy them I will destroy them with the earth Finally Genesis 6:17 God said I'll bring a flood of water a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven everything that is on the earth shall die and it did But that's not the end of the story. God still had a goal in mind. He did not surrender his plan, his purpose. He was still going to accomplish it. He created man in his image with this aim that he would one day fill the earth with the glory of the Lord, reflected in man's faith and righteousness. That's his goal. So what does he do? He preserves one man in his family and gives them a new beginning. And now they're headed the right direction. A new beginning with God's end golden mind. But again, my question this morning is, why did he choose Noah? Why did he choose Noah? Well, the reason Noah was spared was, it's said in Genesis 6, verse 8. It said, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Noah was not without sin but he found grace with God. Now, what does that tell us about Noah? I mean, how do you find grace in the eyes of the Lord? How do you do that? How do you incline yourself to the grace of God? Well, James chapter 4, verse 6 says this. It says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What I want to propose to you today that is if, uh, if, if you want to be part of what God is doing on the earth as he drives history toward his end goal, then you must humble yourself. I mean, God is still giving grace to the humble today. I mean, it is still the humble that God looks to to accomplish his purposes on the earth. It still is the humble. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 2, God is speaking to the prophet. Here's what God says. God says, but to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. I mean, I want to be, don't you want to be someone that God uses? I mean, I want to be a man that God uses. I want to be humble and contrite to spirit. And I want to be one who trembles at his word. I fail at it so often. But it's my desire, it's my pursuit. And in those, in those times, I have humbled myself and asked God to use me with all my shortcomings and all my inadequacies I've been amazed at some of the things that God has done. And he did it. He did it. Those times I think about, those times I brought my five pitiful loaves and two pitiful fish. And God somehow multiplied it and did things that only God could do. I share with you guys just two months ago when I was in Pakistan, some of the things that God did. I mean, after I got sick and he took me out of the picture and all the things he did, I was so glad uh, to, to see what he was doing. But again, th- uh, just last week, one of the Pakistan, Pakistan leaders, Christian leaders, said, I want to tell you what God did after you left, even more. He said, We translated all your notes from the book of Acts, and some women that were in the meetings went and taught them to 24 villages. He said, and then we, those translated notes, we, we had we a network of 2,500 young men training for the ministry in Pakistan, and we taught all 2,500 of these young men your notes. I mean, God did it. God did it. But God is always the one who does it, right? But he is looking for someone to use Someone who's willing to humble themselves and be used, and oh that we, you know, oh that we could just be those kind of people more and more. Amen? Amen. It's interesting when Jesus teaches His Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. He starts off teaching the importance of humility. It's interesting; the very first thing He touches on, the very first beatitude, is the importance of humility. Let's just read it: Matthew five verses one through three. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountains, and after he sat down, his, his disciples came to him. He, opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, notice how he starts this whole amazing sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Being poor in spirit is to just acknowledge your spiritual poverty. Acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy before God. That we are sinners, that we deserve, that he's a holy God, we deserve his wrath, and we are deserving his judgment, and we have nothing to offer, nothing to barter, nothing to buy his favor with. That's spiritual poverty. That's poor in spirit. I mean, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were so rich, so rich in merit that they would thank God for their attainments. That's not the ones. But it was tax collectors and the prostitutes, the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing to God and all they could do is cry out for his mercy. And God heard their cry. Remember the parable that Jesus taught? Let's just review this parable again. Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So, who is he telling them the parable to? To those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and as a result of how they viewed themselves, they viewed others with contempt. That's who he tells the parable to. Let's read it. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. So one is a Jewish religious leader during the days of Jesus, very well respected in his community. The other was a tax collector, someone that was of the most despised because in a sense he was the ultimate traitor. He was not only working for the Romans, collecting taxes from his fellow Jews, but he was also ripping off his fellow Jews and skimming off the top. Well, they both go up to the temple to pray. Here's their prayer. Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes and all that I get. So here now we hear the Pharisee's prayer. This religious leader who trusts in himself that he is righteous, he now is going to present his righteousness to God. I'm not like others, these thieves and robbers and cheaters, the unjust, the adulterers. No, I'm financially honest. I'm just in all my dealings. I'm sexually faithful to my wife. I'm a morally upright man. He's presenting his righteousness to God. I'm faithful to maintain certain disciplines. I make certain sacrifices I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all I get. So what is he doing? He is presenting his righteousness to God. He's trusting in his own moral character, his religious activity, and believing that that right there makes him acceptable to God. That's what he believes. Then verse 13, But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says this in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So what did the tax collector do? The tax collector knew he, trusted, he had no righteousness to present to God, did he? He did not trust in what he, his life at all. He, went, he came before God, and, and, and he realized that he deserved God's wrath. He deserved God's judgment. And he just throws himself on the mercy of God. And then God declares him righteous. He goes home justified. That's why Jesus says what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's those who know that they're spiritually and morally bankrupt and cry out for God's mercy and grace. Those are the ones who receive mercy and grace. And in the end, heaven. Now, the New Testament, of course, is very clear on how God provides righteousness for sinners who are not righteous. And let's just review that real quick. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him Christ, God the Father made God the Son. He made him Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. While he hung on the cross, he's taken all of our sins upon himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That, here's the point of it, here's the purpose of it, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So by trusting in Christ alone for what he did for us and all that he is for us, that we get united with him And because we are in him, that means that what he is counts for us. His righteousness, his morality, his devoutness, it all is credited to our account by us simply repenting and believing in Christ. Not depending on our moral character, not depending on our righteous practices, not depending on all of our spiritual disciplines, depending on what Christ did for us, period. That's it. That's what we're counting on. Philippians 3 9, Apostle Paul clearly taught that, understood that. He said this. He says, That I may be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He also says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boast boast in the Lord. Now, be careful at this point that you, what, what you think. Don't think, well, of course the tax collector you know, cried out for God's mercy. This guy is a worthless scoundrel. Be careful what you think because that's what the Pharisee thought, right? The truth is, in God's eyes, we're all in the same predicament as the tax collector, all of us. And the only hope that anyone has on planet earth is to cry out for God's mercy and grace. And that has been made available to us through what Christ did for us and his work on the cross. But I tell you what, there are, there's, terif- there's four terrifying words in this parable that Jesus gives. It's in the middle of verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector... Went down to his house justified. Here's the four words that are terrifying rather than the other. Rather than the other. The other did not go home justified. The Pharisee, the one who thanked God for his righteousness, that he, you know, that the Pharisee's righteousness, he was not justified. He's condemned. So people who trust in their own righteous behavior for their basis of their acceptance and their acquittal and justification do not go home justified. Still today, the indispensable condition of receiving the kingdom of God is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. That's where it starts. But Jesus goes on and builds the next beatitude. Let's just review a few of these. Next Beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The context here is he's not talking about being comforted because you lost a loved one. That is not the context. He's talking about mourning over sin. That's what he's talking about. See, it's one thing to be spiritually poor. It's another thing to grieve over your sin. So there is an is acknowledgement that I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to barter with God. I have nothing to offer you, God. I'm crying out only for mercy. And I am sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for what has separated me from you. There's a mourning over sin. So the true, Christian, the true Christian recognizes their spiritual poverty and then mourns over their sin. There is sorrow for sin. And then the next parable, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, meekness is essentially a true view of of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. In other words, it's my attitude toward myself, and it is in my expression of that attitude in my relationship with others. See, the meek man is not proud of himself. The meek man is in no sense glories in himself because the meek man knows he has nothing in himself that's worth glorying in, in himself. The meek man does not demand anything for himself. He does not make demands for his position, his privilege, his possessions, his status, because he knows he doesn't deserve any of it. If he has a right appraisal of himself. In fact, a meek man no longer worries about what other, think, other people think about him because he knows he's even worse than they think. <laughs> to be truly meek means that we no longer protect ourselves because we see there's nothing worth defending. So we're not on the defensive. Oh, that's gone. We don't pity ourselves. We're not sorry for ourselves if we're meek. Because why? Because you're finished with yourself altogether. You come to see that you don't have any rights. You gave all those up. What it means to be meek is it means we leave everything, ourselves, our rights, our cause, our whole future in the hands of God. Say, so here, Lord, give it all to you, even unjust suffering. So a man who's truly meek is the one who's actually, you, to truly be meek is you're amazed that God and people even think as well as they do about you. But he goes on to say the meek will inherit the earth. Those are the ones that God looks to to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Those are the ones that God wants to use when he wants to do a new beginning and get things going the right direction again. He's looking for somebody like that. And then finally, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How does that work when nobody seeks God? According to the Bible, not one. I'll tell you how that works. See, the person who's humbled themselves and received God's grace is now a changed person who has different desires. They now actually, because we've been changed by God's grace, we now hunger and thirst for something different. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're no longer satisfied with just what the world has to offer. We now have a, a new desire. We want his righteousness. We want him. We want him and everything about him. And so because we have been changed, we now want to walk with God. There's now a different desire, a different thing we seek after. Now, I went through all that to make this point. Something like that had to happen to Noah. What do I mean by that? It's real important that Genesis 6-8 comes before Genesis 6:9. In Genesis 6-8, it says, Noah found grace with God. Genesis 6 9 says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Genesis 6 9 does not come before Genesis 6 8. Noah did not find grace with God because he was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah found grace with God because he knew his spiritual bankruptcy. He was poor in spirit. God gives grace to the humble. And then he became a changed man who then began to walk with God. I want you to know there's a progression here. That progression in the Beatitudes is really important because that progression we'll see, we can see that same progression in the Old Testament. There is a progression in Noah's life. It all started with humility and finding grace with God. After humbling himself and finding grace from God, he becomes a different man with different desires, and he begins to walk with God. He got a new beginning. He's headed in the right direction to accomplish God's purposes on the earth. He doesn't do it without error, but he's now at least he's headed in the right direction. But my point is this. Those who are willing to humble themselves, those are the ones that God is looking on the earth to use. Let me ask you this. Are you at a place in your life where you think, you know, I just, I sure need a new beginning of some sort. I need a new beginning. Or you're at a place where you say, God, I just want to be used for your purpose. I want to be, when you're searching the earth on who to use, I want your eyes to stop on me and say, I can use him, I can use her. Well, if you want that kind of new beginning and you want to be on that journey, then Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Isaiah 66, 2, again, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit who trembles at my word. I want to offer you some uh, practical advice on how to humble yourself. Begin each day by acknowledging your dependence upon God and your need for God. Let that be the first thing you do each morning when you wake up. Acknowledge your dependence on God and your need for God. I mean, purpose, by grace, So that's going to be the first thought of your day. The first thought of your day is going to be expression of your dependence on God. God, I need you today. I need you. I'm hopeless without you. And allow that way of thinking to control your thoughts. Speak to yourself these thoughts. By the way, do you know that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of speaking to yourself? Take a moment and just review and examine your pattern of thinking from yesterday. Did you spend more time speaking truth to yourself or was your time spent listening to yourself? C.J. Mahaney says this. He says, most of us spend more time listening to lies than we do speaking the truth to ourselves. And in listen, the listening process, he goes on to say, "In the listening process usually starts as soon as we get up. The alarm has rudely interrupted the gift of sleep. And the listening begins. As we stumble through our morning routine, we're not directing the thoughts of our mind. We're simply at their mercy. And we entertain complaints about what happened yesterday or worries about what's going to happen today. And then we look in the bathroom mirror and assess the damage. (laughs) And then we brood over how we feel. We're not in charge of our thinking. We're just there. Instead of doing that, declare war on pride And anxiety and depression by speaking the truth to yourself first thing in the morning. Set the right tone by mentally affirming your dependence on God, your confidence in Him, draw near to Him. Focus on worship and thanksgiving. Just greet the Lord in the morning with gratitude and not grumbling. You know, by the way, thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. See, an ungrateful person is a proud person. If I'm ungrateful, I'm arrogant. And if I'm arrogant, I need to remember that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a secret of humility. It's not looking inward at your deficiencies and your weaknesses. It's not looking outward and comparing yourself with other people, you know your virtues versus their vices, your vices versus their virtues. The key, I think, the key thing is getting a habit of. First thing, start out your day looking into the face of God in dependence and worship and thanksgiving. See, when we see God rightly, that is when we can begin to see ourselves rightly, and then we begin to walk in humility. And by the way, when you walk in humility, is also when you finally get some rest. Pride will wear you out. It's exhausting. Humble yourself and just be someone that God, as he searches the earth, his eyes will rest on you. And he'll say, there's one I can look to right there. There's one I can use for my purposes to get to my end goal. I want to close with just the words from Isaac Watts. The Psalm, this uh, hymn that many of you know, but I just want you to think about the words because they're profound when I survey the wondrous cross, you see, see the focus there? The Lord and the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ, my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. I want to invite uh, Debbie to come on up. There's a song that as many of you might know. It's an old Maranatha song called Humble Thyself in the Side of the Lord. The man who wrote that song was part of Grace Community Church for many years, and he's moved to Colorado, leads a ministry up there now. I'd like us to stand, and we're just going to have this as a time of just saying, Lord, we want to humble ourselves in your sight. We want to be those who, you know, are, are casting off pride and, and all of its sisters and brothers, anxiety, depression, and, and we just want to be one that you would look to. So, Father, even as we are singing this, Lord, we just we want to humble ourselves before you and be the men and women and, that you would use to accomplish your purposes on the earth. And by the way, as we're singing this, some of you might say, I need a new beginning, Lord. I've been walking in pride in some way. I need a new beginning in some sorts. And maybe during this time, you are just gonna use this as an altar and say, Lord, I'm coming right here to bow before you and say, Lord, I just, here I am. I want a new start today. Let's sing. Father we gladly we gladly pour contempt on all our pride. Lord, we want to be those who are totally dependent upon you, poor in spirit. we want to be those that you as you search the earth looking for who it is you can look to we want to be your eyes to stop on us so we gladly humble ourselves Lord we trust Lord whatever <clears throat> Whatever we have, we know comes from you. Any good, we know you did it. And Lord, we commit in advance to give you all the glory for anything you do through us. Lord, we pray today that as we leave this place, that we'd leave just empty of ourselves and full of you. And those we rub shoulders with this, week could be impacted by that full of you part. Before we dismiss, I just want to say that if you're new here, have any questions, some staff will be in this corner. In the back, Connection Coffee, love to answer your questions. If this is your first time, I'd love to meet you right here in this welcome area too and answering questions you have as well. And also, if you have another prayer need, we'll have some elder couples up here and pastor couples willing to pray for you. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, that the yoke, uh, your, your yoke, Jesus, is light and easy. We thank you for that, Lord, that you are humble of heart. We want to be like you. So, Lord, just guide us to that end this week. And, Lord, we pray you accelerate your accomplishing, your purposes on the earth that one day, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Speed it up to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great day, a great week.